The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, we're in 1 Peter, and we're in 1 Peter chapter 5. If you want to turn there, this is a message about shepherding. Now, I didn't grow up in a family of shepherds, and most of you didn't, but I did have some animals. And uh, we had a couple of cows, a couple of horses, some ducks, some geese, some chickens, a raccoon, and a squirrel. You can just hear the banjo music playing in the background of my childhood. And then when I was 10 years old, we got a couple of goats. They were little Nubin show goats that someone was getting rid of. And my dad said, yeah, we'll take them. But there was a problem. The goats would get on top of my mom's car. So in 1984, my dad thought it was a great idea to bring nine, 10-year-old Chase a cattle pride and say, your job is to keep the goats off your mom's car. Yes, sir. I was great at it, right? But sometimes the goats wouldn't get on the car and I just had the cattle prod, had to do something with it. And so my little 10-year-old ADD mind, the hamster wheel started running and I grabbed a, a piece of bailing rope, just grass rope, and tied one goat's collar to the other goat's collar. But I was not finished. Then I grabbed another piece of bailing rope, and I tied it to the middle of the goat's bailing rope that they were tied together on, and I tied it to my bicycle handlebars. <laughs> and I got on the bicycle, and I grabbed the cattle pride. The goats did not think this was as good of an idea as I did. I pride one of the goats lightly and they take off and they don't want to go where I want to go. I'm turning the wheels one way, the goats are taking my bike the other. We end up in the bushes, in the trees. I've got scratches and bruises and there were two problems. The first is that I was not a good shepherd. And the second is that the goats wanted their own way. Sometimes church can be like that. We don't have good shepherds, things don't go well. We can kind of want to go our own way. And so Peter is going to tell the elders of the churches of Asia Minor to shepherd well, way better than 10-year-old Chase could do so. Now he's going to tell them that because judgment is coming. Last week we looked at 1 Peter chapter 4, and one of the verses toward the end of that passage says that judgment is coming and it's going to begin with the household of God. And that's probably Peter referencing back to a time in Ezekiel where the shepherds of Israel were not doing well. And God says judgment is coming to the household of God and it's going to begin with a shepherd. So he's going to tell these people, don't shepherd like those bad shepherds of Israel, shepherd like the chief shepherd. So let's read 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd of the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, 
not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. God, would you help us today? Father, would you help me to teach your word rightly? And God, would you help it to be biblical through and through? God, would you shape us by what we hear? Would you challenge us? Would you convict us? Would you encourage us? And would you move us all toward maturity in Christ and helping one another grow? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, you might read this text with me and you might just go, well, Chase, this is a message to elders. What are there, 10 or 12 of you? Can we all just leave? Well, Meg's is gonna be open when I'm done, I promise, okay? But here's the reality. This is a passage to elders in the first century in Asia Minor, but for anyone who is shepherding in the church, if you're shepherding in a small group, if you're shepherding in a Sunday school class, if you're shepherding in launch pad, if you're trying to shepherd your children well, if you're a teacher in a school and you want to show students what it looks like when there's a good shepherd, you're leading a team at work, there's application for all of us, so let's look at it together. Let's begin maybe by talking about what the elders look like at TBC. As Peter says, I exhort the elders among you, these church leaders, as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. With TBC, because we believe the scripture teaches it, our constitutions explained what we believe the scripture teaches, that TBC is governed by a local group of under shepherds, each looking to and submitting themselves together to Christ, the chief shepherd. And we are tasked with spiritual leadership and governance of the body. We meet every three weeks and we read the Bible and study the Bible together. We pray together. We discuss things that are, are being faced by the church and every major decision we make is a unanimous one. Our pastoral staff, they, they also, we also execute and carry out leadership in the church as well under the oversight of the elder board. Our pastoral staff all shepherd and exercise functional leadership every day. We as elders seek to shepherd, guard, care for, teach the flock, study the word together, teach the word to the body in various ways. We pray for the body daily. We pray for the sick. We seek to shepherd those with needs. We speak to people whose marriages are having trouble. We answer doctrinal questions that arise, all seeking to be good, she good shepherds of God's body and good stewards of the people entrusted to us. And we've got to do that well. Scripture demands that we do that well. In 1 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy what an elder ought to look like. He says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer or elder must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well. 
with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Titus 1 goes on to describe what elders ought to look like. And in the earliest days, the New Testament, the churches had elders. When Paul began taking missionary journeys, we read this in Acts 14. They had appointed elders in every church with prayer and fasting. They committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. So Peter is going to write to these elders in Asia Minor as a fellow elder. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, and then look at these three words, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. He says he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ. The word is martyrs. It's where we get the word martyr. He's a witness of the sufferings of Christ. It's an interesting thing to me that Peter says he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ because it would be very easy to say he's a witness of the resurrection of Christ, but a witness of the sufferings of Christ for Peter is going to bring up his denial, right? Jesus has explained he's going to go to the cross, suffer at the hands of evil men. He's going to rise from the dead. And the day before he dies, that night, he's explaining to his disciples what's going to happen and he says to Peter, he's going to, not, to deny him. And he says, I'll never deny you. I'll die with you if I have to. And Jesus says, no, you're going to deny me three times. And when Christ is being put on trial, there's Peter denying. So when he says he's a witness to the sufferings of Christ, he's speaking not as a judge, but as a man who knows the grace of God, who knows what it means to be loved and forgiven by the good shepherd. And so he's going to say, I speak to you as a witness of this man's suffering who needs his forgiveness just like you. And then I speak to you as a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Now turn to Matthew 17, if you got a Bible or an app, a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Most people think Peter, when he speaks of this, how can you partake of glory that is to be revealed? It's because Peter saw something only two other guys got to see. Jesus, before he died and rose from the dead, it's coming time for them to go towards Jerusalem. And it says, after six days, Jesus took him with Peter, took with him Peter, James, and John. He led them up a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them and Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. Well, that's probably the greatest understatement we're ever going to read, right? Say it this way in the South, Peter, Jesus, Peter, James, and John saw Jesus in all his glory. And they're just amazed by it. It's good that we're here. If you want me to, we'll build some tents, Lord. This is amazing. Their minds are blown. They see a beauty of Jesus that nobody has gotten to see even before. And then, 
While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. They hear the voice of God. They see the beauty of Jesus. They get a glimpse of what they will wait the rest of their lives for. It's this incredible moment. And then what happens next, I think, is good for us to remember. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. People throw out the phrase, I heard the voice of God all the time. They do not usually throw out with it, and I was terrified. But when God speaks audibly in scripture, the people are terrified. And Jesus came and touched them and said, rise and have no fear. And they lifted up their eyes and they saw no one but Jesus. And he said, tell no one of this vision until I've risen from the dead. He says, I've been a partaker of the glory. I've been a partaker of the glory. So he says, as this guy, I'm gonna speak to you. Is this guy I'm going to speak to you? Here, here's the, the thing. This transfiguration moment is like the ultimate wind in their sails, right? I mean, when I, as a ministry leader here, when I meet with young men and I hear how they're leading their families, how they're engaged in small group, how they're sharing Christ at work, when I hear of young men and young women growing in Christ, maturing in Christ, TJ and Abby are like prototypes. So there are all these other couples and singles who are just growing in Christ. One of my favorite people, I won't say her name, but she teaches my son's Sunday school, just plugging away at serving Jesus. She gave him a kazoo today, which I think is a church discipline issue, right? But but they're just all these men and women who are just growing up in Christ, making much of Jesus, just, it's just wind in my sails. On the worst of days, it's what just keeps me going. But I gotta tell you, what Peter says to these shepherds, and I think what he would say to anyone who would shepherd in the church is, all those things are great wind in your sails, but listen. He's gonna tell them in verse four, Jesus is coming, And he's going to appear and it's going to be beautiful. And he's saying, I've partaken in that glory. That's who's speaking to you. I saw him suffer. I've seen his glory. He's worthy. So I'm going to tell you this, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd the flock. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, Eagerly, He's going to say, shepherd the flock. It's not a noun. Don't be a shepherd in that you receive the title and you say, look at me, I'm a shepherd. It's a verb. There's work to do. Shepherd the flock. Shepherd the flock. And then he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Not my flock. Not Danny's flock. Not Austin's flock, not Bob's flock. This is God's flock. You are the people of God and we as elders are called to shepherd you. Now, can you imagine what it'd be like if somebody really, really important that you loved and respected in just this overwhelming way said, hey, take care of my sheep. Would you take care of my sheep? 
But then it's not somebody that you love and respect. It's really, really important. It's God. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So there is this call, this responsibility, this privilege. And we've got a model, thank goodness, that helps us know how to do this. Jesus is the good shepherd. And here's what he said. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. He who's a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. I'm the good shepherd. So Peter is going to call the elders of Asia Minor to be good shepherds, to lay their lives down for the sheep. It's not, I'm a shepherd, listen to me, look at me. It's as shepherds, we are stewards of God's flock and we point people to Jesus. So he says, shepherd the flock. And then he gives kind of three pairs of here's how you do this, here's how you don't do this. Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. It's a call to guard, care for, sacrifice yourselves, lay down your lives, be humble. There was a, a season, it's a season that is, is fading or has faded away, where if you lived in the south or the southwest of the United States, some would think of pastors or shepherds as pillars, elders as pillars of society. But in, in Christ's time, that wouldn't have been the case. Now, there was a time, about 1,000 years, up to about 700 years before Christ came, where kings were called shepherds. They were referred to as shepherds of their people. But by the time Christ came, shepherds were the dregs of society. They were unclean. They hung out with smelly animals all the time. They lived out of town. They were kind of loners. It's even written in rabbinical writings right around the time that Christ came. In the Mishnah, it said, no one should rightly call someone who leads God's people a shepherd. But Jesus does and Peter does and he says shepherd the flock not under compulsion but willing you don't do it under compulsion you don't do it because you have to you do it because you get to it's like this a husband and wife are sitting together on their back porch holding hands and she says what do you think is the secret to us being married so long and he goes well I can't divorce you do not try this at home, right? <laughs> or maybe a little lighter example would be, husband brings his wife flowers and she says, oh, thank you, why did you bring me flowers? That's so nice, right? Oh, it's my duty as a husband to do this, honey. Or maybe it's that I love that you love peonies and neuronculas and I know this brings you delight and so bringing you delight delights me. We shepherd because these are God's people and God has asked and that's the greatest privilege in the world. We're willing man, not something we have to do. But on the best and on the hardest days of shepherding, it's true in family, it's true in small groups, it's true in Sunday school class, we get to, not under compulsion, but willing. Not for shameful gain, but eager. 
Now, does this mean that elders can't be compensated or pastors can't be compensated? That's not what it means. The scripture, as we read the, the whole of it, teaches that, that a pastor or an elder or a shepherd can be compensated for his work, but that can't be the motivation. Several years ago, I was talking to Salathiel Nsingyumva, who's the lead pastor of the churches. He's planted the churches that we partner with in Rwanda, and we were talking one day about the difficulties that they face in Rwanda. What's the biggest difficulty that you face as a church in Rwanda, inside the church? And his answer was, well, it's the prosperity gospel. And he talked about a variety of ways how that plays out, but one of them is that in certain villages in Rwanda, if you go to pastor and you're teaching the prosperity gospel, you can make more money than any man in that village. So guys who don't know Jesus, who have no interest in knowing Jesus, who don't know the scripture will say, yes, I'll pastor. Well, listen, that's not just true in Rwanda. It's true here. There are people who pastor and teach and shepherd for shameful gain. And Peter says, no. You do it because you're eager to lead God's people. You're eager to serve God's people. You're eager to lay down your life. You wake up wanting to do the job. And he says, not domineering, but being examples for the flock. It's not, well, they better listen to us. We're the elders, right? But setting an example to the flock. The example Jesus said, if any would be great among you, let him be the servant of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now, when I think about what it means to know elders, the men that I get to serve with, and to know their wives at TBC, I think about people who set an example, and it's easy to get to know them if you see them. I think about two families whose kids are no longer launch pad age, but two elders and their wives are in the launch pad, loving on kids, speaking truth to kids about Jesus, telling the gospel story to them, helping them to grow in Christ. It's the beginning of the discipleship process. Three elders and spouses serving on our welcome team as the, the face of TBC, as somebody new comes in the door on Sunday morning, here are these men and women who are loving people well and encouraging them to get engaged in the church. We have elders serving in our junior high ministry, too, who serve on our global outreach team, who work alongside Brandon Brewer to care for our missionaries and make sure they are doing well and have what they need. We have several teaching adult Sunday school and all either connected to or getting reconnected with small groups. When I, when I look at the men that I get to serve with and their wives, I see people who set an example to the flock. We've had elders over the years that launched a church plan in Colleen and who moved to New York City for a, a few years to help a church get launched there. We've had some move to Estonia or to Ukraine. Too many hospital visits, in-home visits, mission trips, nights in prayer to count. We've had elders previously who've invited homeless friends to live with them for months and Peter's going to tell these elders that it's worth it he's going to tell you and me wherever we're shepherding it's worth it he says and when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the unfading crown of glory 
He does not say if the chief shepherd appears, right? He says when the chief shepherd appears. Our, our staff, our ministry leaders, ministry associates, and ministry assistants went to a conference this week in Dallas called the Right Now Conference, and one of the people we heard there was a guy named Ben Stewart, who is a pastor of Passion City Church in Washington, D.C., and he was talking about the disciples in the storm with Jesus, and he, he made this statement. He said, when we get into storms, we're certain about the danger of the storms. We're uncertain about whether or not Jesus is going to show up and do something. That's what we tend to do in storms. But we don't have to have any uncertainty when the chief shepherd appears. He's going to appear. The word is a physical manifestation like he bodily rose from the dead. Jesus will appear as the chief shepherd. The word chief shepherd, it's archipoemenus. It literally is where we get the word archbishop. Jesus is the chief shepherd of the church. He's the chief shepherd of the church. Now, shepherds had become the dregs, but it wasn't always that way. And there were three psalms that came to be known as the shepherd psalms. Psalm 22 Israel could look forward to the Messiah who would lay his life down for the sheep. Jesus quoted Psalm 22 when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was the good shepherd. Then there was Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd and, and Jesus became the great shepherd who who when he gave his life and rose from the dead, it meant for you and me in Christ that goodness and mercy would follow us all the days of our lives. And then Psalm 24 described the chief shepherd. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it. He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The chief shepherd, see the earth is his, but it's not just that the earth is his, righteousness is his. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul up to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. This was this aspirational psalm for Israel and everybody failed at it, but Jesus came and he had clean hands and a pure heart. He didn't lift his soul up to what was false. He never uttered a word of deceit. He was the chief shepherd. The earth is his, righteousness is his, blessing is his. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And then the chief shepherd, glory is his. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient gates. Why? That the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? That's a great question. The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. When this king of glory appears, you will receive, it's to carry off a prize, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Now, that's a beautiful statement. In, in the Middle East, in the Roman Empire, people did get crowns. When they got married, they got a crown. You put a crown on your head, it would have flowers, and the flowers would fade away. If you're a really, really good athlete, maybe you went to 
those Olympic games and you won, you'd get a crown made of oak or ivy and it would fade away, but it was to be prized. But Peter says you're going to receive an unfading crown. Now the word unfading in the Greek is amaranthus. And unless you're a horticulturist, you don't know what amaranthus means. But I'm going to tell you today. It's this red, unfading flower. The unfading crown is an amaranthus crown. They don't fade. They keep their red. You cut them off and, and they look dead. You think they're dead. You just give them a little touch of water and they brighten up. They don't fade away. They last a long time, so much so that this flower in the Greco-Roman Empire became associated with immortality. People would plant it so that they would have life that wouldn't fade away. So Jesus says, when the chief shepherd appears, you just keep going, you keep going because you're gonna receive an unfading crown of glory. Let this be the wind in your sails for the final lap. But you gotta keep running. Nobody knows that as well as an Israeli runner, a lady named Lona Salpeter. In 2018, she won the 10,000 meters at the European Games, and a week later, she's running the 5,000 meters, and she rounds that final curve, and she crosses the finish line, and she just goes into the grass to collapse, and then she hears a bell ringing. And that bell ringing is the, the symbol that the final lap is starting. She stopped too soon. She thought she was done and she wasn't done. See, for all of us in Christ, there are days where you want to give up. We know people who have. There are days where you just want to stop. You just think, I can't keep going. My legs are tired, my lungs are burning. I need help. And Peter says, keep running because when the chief shepherd appears, there's a crown waiting for you that you can't even imagine. And here's the reality. Peter saw it on that mountain. The first second that we are in the presence of Jesus Christ in all his glory. Everything walked through will be worth it and more. We'll say with Hudson Taylor, I never made a sacrifice. Oh, this was it? I couldn't have imagined this. Forever? We'll just be blown away. So he says, keep going. Keep going. And he wants us to do that together. He wants us to do it together. Whether we're shepherding the church or shepherding children or shepherding a small group or shepherding a class, keep running. To do it together, though, it takes humility. So he says, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So he says, be subject to elders, but there are three things that make this really, really difficult. Peter is supposing that the elders will be good shepherds, and so there are three problems with this. One is that they're bad shepherds of bad gospels. 
The second is that they're bad shepherds of the good gospel. And the third is that we don't want anybody to tell us what to do. Bad shepherds of bad gospels, these are people who do not tell you the truth about Jesus. Well, Chase, what if they're a good shepherd, but it's a bad gospel? That's not a good shepherd. That's called a wolf, right? And I think of a man and a woman about 10 or 15 years ago, they were just both separate teachers, ladies writing books, the man speaking, she's speaking some, and he would kind of do his thing really edgy, really cool, really hip. And, and I remember I'm listening to one of his talks and he just says, I mean, is it really a big deal if we just remove the virgin birth? I mean, if we pull that brick, is the whole wall gonna fall down? Well, yeah, it, it might. And you just kind of fast forward. So your theology sets you, my theology sets us on a journey. So his theology just starts going and he, he becomes less edgy and more like, oh, wait, I'm not sure if I should listen to that guy. And now 10, 15 years later, he's just abandoned historic Christianity. Lady, edgy, hip, cool. She'd say, well, when I read this scripture, I think God's saying this, and it is not what that scripture's saying. And it just gets a little worse and a little worse. Oh, what's so nice? But she's so nice. She just wants us to be nice to people, right? And then she abandons what the scripture teaches about human sexuality. But hey, it's gotta be monogamous. And then three or four years after that present time now her marriage is dissolved and she's not monogamous. She's traveling the country with a guy she's not married to. They're bad shepherds of bad gospels. So it's hard, that hurts. Can we trust these people leading? But then they're also bad shepherds of the good gospel. They know the truth about Jesus. They speak the truth about Jesus, but we've seen it, we've heard the stories, we've listened online. There's abuse of authority. There's love of controversy. Sometimes elders have to deal with controversy, but we can't love controversy. They know the word without living the word. And what I'd say, you see those people, listen, I wouldn't take hair care advice from a bald guy, right? They know the word, but they don't live the word. I think of this little guy that, you know, I see him on news shows and he talks all about the politics he loves, but he doesn't talk about Jesus much anymore. He has capacity, but no character, and that's a train wreck. He has competency, but that doesn't equal character. It's a train wreck. See, good shepherds of the good gospel love God and the privilege of serving his people. And so to these people, he says, be subject to to the elders, it takes humility from the elders, but it takes humility from the flock. And the third problem is that nobody really wants anybody to tell them what to do. I was kind of tracing the history of this because for a long time, we haven't really wanted anybody to tell us what to do. And I was thinking, well, did this happen during the Enlightenment when we stopped wanting anyone to tell us what to do? Did it happen during the Industrial Revolution? Was it from modernism? Is it a result of postmodernism? But I wrote in my notes two words. When did we stop wanting people to tell us what to do? The garden, right? When Adam and Eve thought they could be God, we have followed suit. So in our culture, this works itself out in two ways and, and they look 
kind of to the naked eye, like they're the opposite of one another, but they're really the same thing. One is the foundation of the other, and one is this idea of rugged individualism. It's this great Western principle, and it's this idea that I can be whatever I want to be, and I've got my rights, and nobody's taking my rights from me. I'm my own man. I'm a self-made man, and I've got me taken care of. I can be whatever I want to be. Well, no, you, you probably can't, right? But then it kind of bleeds and bleeds and bleeds and bleeds over the years. Blake and Shelley were writing poems loved by rugged individualists that talked about freedom and they talked about sexual freedom, but Blake and Shelley never could have imagined where that would go And now we have people going, I can be whatever I want to be and I have the right to be whoever I want to be. You can't tell me anything about who I get to have sex with or what my name is or whether I'm male or female. And see, it's a strange thing because a lot of people who embrace rugged individualism hate expressive individualism, but rugged individualism is the foundation of expressive individualism. Rugged individualists made expressive individualists. And the reality is neither of those works really well. We need God and we need each other. Just a couple of books if you want to read. There's a guy named Carl Truman that wrote a couple of books. The first is called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's a big book that I, uh, I read last year. I wish that I would have waited till he wrote the smaller book. <laughs> to read. I'll tell you about both of those. Carl Truman wrote The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and The Road to the Sexual Revolution. Then he wrote a smaller book that kind of tells the same story, Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. Carl Truman says this, he says, the collapse in evangelical doctrinal consensus, the collapse of evangelicals really embracing unity of what we believe in the body of Christ is intimately related to two things, the collapse in understanding of and the role assigned to scripture is God's word spoken within the church. The collapse of evangelical doctrinal consensus, it's not because we can't all get along, right? It's related to this, We don't understand the Bible and we don't understand its role. It's the scripture that is God's word spoken to the church. And if we don't understand the Bible as God's word, we wanna understand the Bible as God's word here, right? We're not always gonna get everything right, there's no question, but we want Bible to be our middle name. We wanna understand it's God's word and it has authority over us as a people. It leads us to Jesus and guides our lives. But to do this well, it takes humility from the elders and humility from the flock. So Peter says, All of you act in humility toward one another. James said the same thing. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Peter and James are quoting Proverbs 3. Toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. It takes humility from the elders and humility from the flock. I I don't want to listen to anybody tell me what to do. I'm going to do Christianity on my own. There's something intrinsically prideful and plainly unbiblical about seeking to do Christianity on your own. 
Jesus died to bring us to God and he died to bring us together. No, 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 Chase, my, my religion's private. It's private, it's personal, it's mine. I don't need the church. I don't need, I don't need the church. I've got Jesus. I don't really need anybody else. Listen, people have been saying this for hundreds of years and about 100 years ago, Jay Gresham Macon said something that I, I can't say any better than he did. You're free to create your own religion, but don't call it Christianity. That one's taken. In Christianity, Jesus died to bring us to God and he died to bring us together and he is bringing together a church from every tribe, tongue, and nation and he will appear and it will be worth every bit. But if we're gonna run this race well, if we're gonna stay running to the finish line, it takes humility from the elders, it takes humility from the flock and only then will we find the unity in Christ we're looking for. So let's pray together. And first, would we just pray that elders would surrender to Jesus and shepherd God's people well. As we pray, we really gotta thank God for the elders and their wives who've gone before us, who have led us well and pointed us to Christ. And then we've gotta ask God to continue using us as we make disciples to raise up the next generation of shepherds for this church. So would you go before the Lord in prayer with me? Well, God, we need you. God, we need you more than we need the sun and the moon. We need you more than we need breath and water. We need you, Lord Jesus. And we thank you that you are the good shepherd who laid your life down for the sheep. We thank you, God, that you are the great shepherd who causes goodness and mercy to follow us all the days of our life. And you're the chief shepherd and you will come back in all your glory. So God, we pray for shepherds in this church, for shepherds in Launchpad, for shepherds in Overflow, for shepherds in Creekside, for shepherds in small groups, for shepherds of their families and for our elders and their wives, God that we would surrender to Jesus and that we would shepherd well. God, we thank you, Lord. Thank you for people who have gone to be with Jesus, who lived and died in this place for your glory to help us know you, God. We are grateful. And Lord, I thank you for young people in this place that will be the next generation of shepherds here. God, help us to be faithful to you as we seek to point them to you as our good and gracious king, the only chief shepherd, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? Praise God from whom Blessings flow, praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son. Holy 
bless you. Let's pray together.